Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Beats Research Radio, a podcast and YouTube channel that aims to disseminate science and research the community. My name is Nicole Chu, and I'll be your host on today's episode. Joining us is Dr. Duncan Stewart. Dr. Stewart serves as the CEO and Scientific Director of the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and the Executive Vice President of Research at the Ottawa Hospital. He is an active senior scientist in the Ottawa Hospital's Regenerative Medicine Program, who holds the Evelyn and Raoul Lashley Chair, and is also a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Stewart is recognized as a pioneering Canadian cardiovascular researcher for his discoveries in blood vessel biology and his focus on translating these discoveries into clinical treatments for patients and society. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Stewart. It's my pleasure. Mm -hmm. We're definitely super honored to have you on our channel. So to start us off, for those who may not know, can you please explain in general terms the main focuses of your team's research? Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm a, um, a, a vascular biologist, so my interest is in blood vessels wherever they are in the body. So I'm, I'm a cardiologist, so obviously I'm interested in the heart. But, but more and more, I really become fascinated by uh, diseases of blood vessels in the lung. And uh, that might be surprising because we think of the lung as being uh, an organ full of air and bringing the oxygen to the body. But what, what, what you must realize is that there's just as much blood vessels and blood in the lung as there is air because the purpose of the lung is to oxygenate that blood. So that blood's got to be delivered to the lung. And then, of course, it's got to go to the rest of the body. Uh, so the, the lung actually has more blood vessels in it than any other organ. So it's the most vascular organ, uh, particularly the microcirculation. And um, and normally it works very well. It's like um, a radiator. There's very little resistance. The blood just percolates through the lung, picks up the oxygen. Everything's good. But there are some diseases where where the vessels are become diseased, and uh, and it no longer works well. Um, so one of these diseases is pulmonary hypertension, a disease that particularly pulmonary arterial hypertension that I'm I, I, I'm very interested in. I, I, it's what I do as a clinical practice. I'm, I'm part of the pulmonary hypertension clinic at the Ottawa Heart Institute. Uh, and uh, and this is a very very difficult and devastating disease. It's a it's a disease that can affect all ages, but but often young people, children, and young adults. And there's a strong female predominance. So about four to one of, uh, of our patients are are female compared to to, to male. And, and we understand very little about the disease, surprisingly. Um, and certainly we don't understand why there's that strong female predominance. We're still really struggling to understand it. But but what we do know is it's a disease of real loss of functional blood vessels. So by the time you develop this disease, you probably lost about 80% of the small arteries in the lung. Uh, and then there's no longer enough arteries to really allow the blood to get through the lung at a, at a low pressure. So the pressure builds up, the resistance builds up. And the right side of the heart, which is normally um, not a very, it's a thin wall, not a very strong ventricle, has to cope with this. It has to thicken, adapt. Um, and ultimately, those pressures become the same as the pressures in the rest of the body. Um, and, uh, you know, that uh, finally the heart, of course, gets exhausted and can't push the blood through. So so this is, a, this is a fascinating disease and one where we're trying to understand why is it that you lose blood vessels and what can we do uh, to better treat this disease? Oh, thank you for sharing. So you and your team, as you mentioned, uh, work with a lot of pulmonary hypertension and have made several major discoveries uncovering the importance of endothelial factors in this disease, which have led to the world's first clinical trial of gene-enhanced cell therapy for pulmonary hypertension. Do you mind sharing with us a brief overview of the main focuses for this trial? 
Yeah, so so we began. This is this is way back when the dark ages. So I guess it was late eighties, early nineties when endothelial dysfunction was a was was a novel concept. And uh, I just finished my training and came back, um, and, and and began to look at whether this was an issue in pulmonary uh, hypertension. And we were the first to recognize there was a remarkable um, 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 perturbation of endothelial function disease, and and we recognized that one particular pathway, endothelial pathway, was tremendously activated in patients that had this disease. And, and the disease is characterized by this very um, dramatic uh, remodeling of blood vessels, complex sort of almost angioproliferative remodeling. It looks like it's the vessels are trying to repair themselves and they just can't do it. And it's onion skin, complex, multi-channel. Uh, so it's, you don't see this anywhere else in the body. It's really quite remarkable. And those lesions were just lighting up like Christmas trees with endothelium. Uh, and, and based on those observations, um, actually the first um, uh, oral treatment for pulmonary hypertension was developed. So the endothelial receptor antagonist. So we worked very closely with the, um, with, with, with the scientists that were leading that effort and you, you, in a new company they created, uh, to, uh, to, uh, focus it on pulmonary hypertension. So it was really rewarding to see that. But, and now we have, you know, uh, a, a, a half a dozen different therapies for the disease, but none of them, and unfortunately endothelial antagonist, again, although they helped some degree, they improved symptoms. They certainly didn't cure the disease, and 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 so there's still uh, none of the th therapies we have right now, which are all based on the concept of endothelial dysfunction, really um, uh, by any means are curative. Patients still progress the disease; they still end up going to heart failure. Unfortunately, many die, and and a few get lung transplantation. Um, so there really is a need to 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 understand better the fundamental biology and develop therapies that are actually going to address the root problem. So this is where we became interested in angiogenesis uh, and, and, and repairing and regenerating blood vessels in the lung. As I said before, the problem is there aren't enough blood vessels. Um, so, uh, and in fact, you know, as I said, really bef before you get disease, you've lost about 80% of the microcirculation. So, so it makes sense that if we could actually regenerate some of those blood vessels, that could really make a big difference. And so we, you know, for the last it's almost 20 years now, we've been pursuing this idea. Uh, and we had great success in the preclinical studies that we could really reverse uh, this disease almost almost completely, uh, you know, sort of reverse it uh, with dramatic results in the accepted models, which are, of course, limited. Uh, and on the basis of that, uh, we were able to initiate the, the world's first uh, clinical trial that was focused on uh, on regenerating blood vessels by angiogenesis. And we used endothelial progenitor cells. These are cells which are known to be uh, involved and stimulate angiogenesis. And we genetically engineered them in a way, actually using uh, a gene that's involved in endothelial function, endothelial nitric oxide synthase, but it's also a very important gene for efficient blood vessel repair and growth. So uh, these genetically engineered cells were then, we showed, showed that they really work well in the preclinical models. And uh, and uh, then move that into into clinical trials. So we completed um, almost a decade ago the phase one trial, a uh, small number of patients, uh, but it showed that it was tolerated, and 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 showed promising results in terms of potential efficacy. And we're now in the midst of a phase two trial where we're actually doing a randomized blinded controlled trial, uh, looking at whether this therapy uh, is is effective. And also, of course, we're looking at safety. And we're using now multiple dosing, up to eight monthly doses of these genetically engineered cells to try to uh, sort of get a, a cumulative uh, effect to really restore 
uh, the, uh, the lung vascular function in these patients. So, of course, it's a it's ongoing. It's a randomized blinded trial, so I can't can't give you any any uh, uh, sort of information about whether it's going to work or not. But what I can tell you has been very well tolerated, been really no major um, adverse events uh, at all. Uh, and uh, we are certainly seeing patients uh, that have had remarkable improvements. We don't know whether we can attribute that to the therapy or not, but uh, we're, we'll be very excited when we can actually unblind and, and see what, what what's going on. Oh, I see. Wow, it's super cool to see a decades-long um, journey of work finally come into the clinical phase two trial. So another clinical trial in which you are co-leading is investigating how mesenchymal stem cells can be used to help the body's immune system fight COVID-19. So how is stem cell therapy expected to help patients with COVID-19? And do you mind sharing us uh, with us some of the main goals from this study? Yeah, so thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question. Um, but I, again, the, the trial is is based on uh, on the idea that these stem cells can help uh, repair damage in the lung that occurs in this disease. But more importantly, these mesenchymal stem cells, in addition to having stem cell activity, they have, have quite important what we call immunomodulatory activities. They, they, they interact with the immune system uh, to tone down uh, inflammation uh, and promote healing. So we think uh, uh, these uh, mesenchymal stem cells or MSCs are actually part of the healing process. And, uh, and uh, you know, in addition to stimulating repair, they also modify healing to make it a more, um, uh, sorry, modify inflammation to make it more uh, uh, of a healing event rather than a, a damaging event. Now, in, in COVID-19, um, certainly in the, with the earlier variants we had, uh, the real problem was um, that these patients developed severe lung injury. And that was because of the tremendous immune response to the virus. The virus attacked the lungs, and then the immune system got hyperactivated. And a lot of the damage actually was not the virus, but it was the immune system trying to get rid of the virus, so collateral damage. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, so, and, and, of course, the patients then developed uh, very severe um, uh, lung injury and were unable to be to oxygenate even with the support of ventilation, uh, you know, artificial ventilation, oxygen, all of this. Uh, and, and of course, the mortality rate was 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 really uh, very very disturbingly high. So so the idea was to try to use these cells both to promote the healing, but also to really r ratchet down that that damaging inflammation to try to turn it into rather than collateral damage, it's supporting the whole effort of the body to heal. Uh, and again, we we've been working. We didn't just start this when COVID began. We were doing this work before because uh, the the lung injury and the ARDS syndrome uh, is is part and parcel with patients that get very sick from sepsis or other major surgery trauma. So we see this clinically. It's a major reason why um, patients enter the ICU and require mechanical ventilation. So so we've been working again for well over a decade uh, to look at the effect of these stem cells in ARDS and showed. One of the first to show that there were, again, dramatic and important uh, effects in the preclinical models. And we'd already done the world's first clinical trial with this approach uh, in sepsis patients, led by Laurel and McIntyre at, uh, at the Ottawa Hospital, um, and showed, again, a smaller uh, number of patients, but showing, again, it was well tolerated, and we had some signals which uh, supported that this may be effective. So when the pandemic came, we were able to pivot that and say, okay, it's the same kind of problem. It's more severe in covid but the, the same principles should hold, and this treatment should be effective. Uh, so again, we, uh, we 
we move pretty quickly actually it usually takes a couple of years to get a clinical trial going i think we did it in less than eight weeks <laughs> from you know um, again health canada was very responsive and we had a lot of the data for safety and uh, and so forth so we were able to pivot uh, develop our product and get the approvals in place and start that trial quite quickly uh, and we've now completed again the safety trial we had to show that it was tolerated in these patients and again we're in the midst of a um, of a randomized blinded phase two trial uh, which is ongoing now. And uh, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, when I look at it, the, trials, the trial has been slowed down a little bit in recruitment because now we're with the current variants, we're not seeing patients getting quite so sick. So the number of patients that are available or need this kind of therapy is less, but uh, we're still enrolling uh, patients in the trial. And we hope soon to be in a position that we can unblind it and look and see whether this is this has improved outcomes. Uh, again, from the initial um, um, phase one safety trial, and we had an extension trial. We did, however, see a nice dose-dependent effect, and we saw the patients that with the highest dose of cells, because this was unblinded, uh, seemed to have better responses in terms of survival uh, and and uh, the requirement for for mechanical ventilation oxygen therapy. So, so we're we're, we're very hopeful that we're going to see some benefits with this with this therapy. Oh, so as we've gone through our discussion already, you have led many clinical trials uh, so far. So what are some of the challenges? This is much more a broad question, moving from preclinical research into these clinical trials. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is not easy. And uh, I think had I known what I was getting in for, maybe I would have been more hesitant to, to start it. But, but you know, and you need a lot of help. That, that's the thing. Um, and I think we're fortunate here in, in Ottawa to have um, to have support to do this kind of work, uh, uh, because as a as someone who does mainly more basic research, uh, it's a whole other world when you start to move into the clinic. Uh, so you need, but first of all, you need good basic research. You need really rigorous preclinical studies. So you got to be sure whatever your um, whatever therapy or whatever approach you're developing, you're really confident and you have the data that tells you this is worth going into clinical trials because it looks like it's really promising. So that's really important. So that means doing the preclinical work in a in a way that's different than we usually do. It's a very we should you know very rigorously done with the same things we do for clinical trials like blinding, randomization, uh, you know, uh, and so forth. Um, then you've got to be sure it's safe, right? So again, you need to do um, uh, uh, quite extensive studies to make sure whatever you're doing is going to be well tolerated. Because the last thing you want to do is to is is, is to have uh, have something in the clinic that is going to cause problems. So once once you're confident, of course, you'll need all that when you go to the regulatory folks at Health Canada. They'll want to see that solid data that it works and solid data that it's safe. Uh, and that's just a starting point. So once you have that, then you've got to figure out all the manufacturing. So you need to have experts that know how to produce clinical grade products, completely different kind of science and how to adapt what we do in the lab to something that would be compatible with a clinical use. Uh, so again, we do have uh, very uh, successful and experienced GMP facilities that help us uh, do that. And then you need experts that know how to do clinical trials. So it's it's a whole science in itself. How do you design a trial for a specific kind of therapy in the way it's most likely to be successful? Uh, and give and answer the question that you're trying to answer, uh, and and many choices. I mean, what are the endpoints you're going to be looking at? What are the most important endpoints? Uh, how, you know, what are the kind of trial designs that would make the most sense, um, and so forth. Um, so again, we are we benefit from having Method Center both at the Heart Institute and at the at OHRI that really have 
tremendous depth of experience, people you can sit down with, methodologists, statisticians, uh, people that understand how you manage data to, to, to design the processes. Of course, then you need to design all of the, you know, um, case reports, forms, all of the logistics of doing a trial, right? It's uh, So you need people that know how to do that, that have the templates that can adapt them. Uh, and of course, it's all electronic now, so you need people that know how to do that and do that in electronic format. So you really need a team. So you can't, this is not something you do on your own. You do it as, as a uh, as as a team with with uh, you know all of the different um, uh, folks that have the specific expertise that you need to be successful. And the other thing I'd say is very important. We're understanding more and more now is you also need to have patience on your team. So um, you know I talked about you know what what endpoints do you want to design your trial to address? Well, you know as as a clinician uh, I, I have some idea what what's an important endpoint, for example, for a pulmonary hypertension trial. But uh, you know it's important to get the patient's view too. Um, so what is the most meaningful for them? You know, what is it that they'd like to see? What is an endpoint that would really, uh, you know, be something that would be important for them? Uh, and, and uh, you know, many aspects of trial design, you know, the logistics of trial, the number of visits, how it's done. You really need to get that patient perspective to say, okay, that sounds good in, in, in theory, but, you know, somebody who may be receiving such a, uh, a, a, a therapy or has has, has this the disease that you're trying to treat, uh, you know, what are the implications? What do they see? What are they, what, what are their views? And so incorporating patients into your team is, is, you know, much makes it much more likely to be successful. Oh no, I love the perspective and the team values that you emphasize, and especially incorporating patients into your team. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. Dun- uh, Duncan Stewart, for sharing with us your research on clinical trials and how you have been bringing research from the bench to the bedside. My pleasure. It was great talking to you. Mm -hmm. And thank you to all Beats Research Radio listeners for your time. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram channels at Beats Research. On behalf of our entire radio team and director, Dr. Emilio Alarcon, we hope to see you all again next week. 